This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Recently, UK Prime Minister Theresa May announced the date that the UK was going to be leaving the European Union. That date is March 29th, 2019 at 11 p.m. local time. And that is at the two-year cutoff after invoking Article 50 to start the process of the exit from the EU. But the talks as to the reparations of leaving the EU are still not finalized. In fact, EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, has said that there are contingency plans should the talks collapse. And that has sent a bit of a shockwave through the region. A summit will be held in mid-December to see if the core issues, like the separation bill, the Irish border, and citizens' rights have moved far enough along to advance the negotiations. To take a look at all of this and what is going on, we welcome back in Brendan O'Leary, professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. And joining us on the show on the phone is Michelle Egan, professor in the School of International Service at American University, as well as a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Brendan, as always, great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Dan. Michelle, great to have you back with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Th- thank you. I-, I-, I guess give us the latest, <laughs> Brendan, because it's seemingly these comments by... Uh, Michelle Barnier have uh, have shocked some people, but not shocked others. Maybe even yourself. Uh, they they're not shocking. Uh, I think uh, we're in the latest episode of Groundhog Day. Things are moving incredibly slowly. For those of you who don't know that movie, it's about constant repetition. The three outstanding questions remain uh, to be resolved before we can get to the next stage of the negotiations, namely citizens' rights in uh, inside the EU, uh, British citizens, and the rights of EU citizens inside the UK, number one. Number two, how are they going to resolve the question of the Good Friday Agreement, which has to be respected in all its parts? And they have to decide, um, according to an EU memo, uh, to deal with the reality that if uh, Northern Ireland is not kept in the customs union and the single market, there will be a hard border across Ireland. The EU has said that. Uh, absolutely emphatically in its internal memorandum, which indicates that there's no technological fix for that question. And then thirdly, there's the um, price of the divorce bill. Um, And we're we're talking roughly of a gap between 20 billion and 60 billion at least. Michelle, how, how have you been reacting to all of this that has gone on over the last couple of weeks? Well, I think I would perfectly agree with with Brendan. These three issues are still on the table, and the lack of progress is perhaps what is pushing the EU negotiators, who are now concerned about the collapse of the talks. They're looking at what effectively, from the outside, the British government looks confused, floundering, and ineffective. Groundhog Day is a great analogy. And, you know, we always expected this process to be difficult. This is a negotiation. But, you know, you go to Europe now, and Europe is also moving on. You know, they've got other issues that they want to deal with beyond Brexit. How is this How is this impacting what's going on in the government of the UK right now, both uh, whether that be in England and other parts of, of the region as well? Michelle? Well, there was a report this weekend in the Sunday Times that 40 Tory MPs have signed a letter uh, pushing for a prime minister to have a confidence vote. And there is a great deal of concern 
about the fact she sacked another cabinet minister. You've got Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, the foreign minister, sort of going rogue. And, you know, the level of cabinet infighting is very public. And Theresa May does not look like she's in control of the process. And so it's a sort of crisis of governance. And that's part of the problem. Does this put her in jeopardy in terms of being prime minister, Brendan? She's a dead woman walking. The only Mm -hmm. question is uh, when she falls. Uh, She's very lucky. Her conspirators against her are totally incompetent. That's Mm -hmm. the only thing that keeps her going. Uh, Boris Johnson, uh, her alleged chief rival, is in trouble because he uh, spoke inappropriately and endangered the safety of a British citizen who's been arrested in Iran. Uh, Michael Gove and he appear to uh, be conspiring to achieve some kind of hard UK exit, for which there is not a majority inside the House of Commons, let alone inside the Conservative Party. So there are deep internal difficulties. She's lost uh, two ministers um, in in November already and may lose more. The deputy prime minister is the subject of a cabinet investigation after a police accusation that pornography of a serious kind was found on his uh, computers. So she has difficulties ahead and she still hasn't settled on a, on a very clear strategy. Are the uh, negotiations going to lead to the UK fully leaving the customs union and the, uh, the single market and refuse to accept any jurisdiction for, uh, for the Court of Justice of the European Union? If that's the case, then there isn't going to be um, any successful settlement of any kind. At the moment, I think we're dealing with a, um, a world in which conservative fantasies about their bargaining power mm-hmm. have yet to be fully confronted with reality. December may be the point at which that occurs, when the EU says, this is pointless. Look, if we're going to have a settlement, we have to have the settlement ready by the fall of next year because the parliament has to vote on it as well as the the heads of state and government and there has to be time to conduct the European parliamentary elections in May of 2019. So time is very much running out on the Conservatives. And and again, this is not something that can take place in the span of a three-month or four-month period. This is something that is an extensive outline with so many different tentacles that you have to get this done in, in relatively quick fashion or else absolutely I, I mean what what is well, what is the leftover if there isn't a deal uh, well there's two possibilities one is uh, the UK simply leaves the EU on the appointed hour without any agreement at all and without paying its bills in which case there are serious difficulties for uh, the UK and Ireland, but less so for the EU27, who could, I think, absorb the shock quite easily. Uh, And then the second thing would be some last-minute transitional deal, which keeps um, the UK inside the single market and the customs union while they agree to continue negotiating. Uh, And that's going to be a pretty sticky position for the Conservative government to be in because they won't really be out. They'll be pretending to be out, but they will have no say over the regulatory structure in the period ahead, and they still won't be able to negotiate trade deals with other other countries. Well, Michelle, I was going to add that uh, for you is that seemingly that puts the UK uh, really literally behind the eight ball if they get to that point, correct? 
It is. And I would also say, look at the economic factors. We've got rising inflation in Britain, falling real wages. Even though we have low unemployment, uh, you compare that to the economic recovery in Europe, we're really in a slowdown and possibly a recession. And we have business uncertainty, particularly for the city of London, about what any deal will be in services, in financial services. And so it's not simply, you know, the political paralysis and the political, I have no idea how to describe what is going on in the Tory government, but the economic factors are just there, but nobody is paying attention to the consequences and the economic situation in Britain is not looking good either. And part of this is exacerbated by business uncertainty, but we're just not doing as well in Britain as the rest of Europe, which is now going through finally an economic recovery. So I think we need to add that as well. Bren? I think what we'll see after Christmas is a series of major firms, perhaps in the financial sector or elsewhere, deciding on their relocation strategy. They were hoping to be clear by this stage of the year right. uh, what the final uh, configuration of an agreement might might have been. But they have, they have their own time horizons, and basically uh, uh, the interval is now being squeezed. They'll have to make decisions. And I think that that loss of foreign direct investment on top of a falling pound and on top of inflation might concentrate the mind. But we'll see. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or your questions. 844-942-7866. We're joined in studio by Brendan O'Leary, uh, professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, on the phone with Michelle Egan, professor in the School of International Service at American University and also a global fellow at the Wilson Center. If you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Is there a piece to this, Brendan, that, that seemingly is of greatest interest to you? And, and obviously, I would think part of it is what's going on in Ireland and, and Northern Ireland and how that is all going to play out. Well, I, I think what's significant, this is the moment in which Ireland's government has maximum bargaining leverage. It has to make sure that everything is safe before uh, subsequent negotiations begin. And they will be looking at two things. They'll be looking at the possibility of adding a protocol to any treaty signed between the EU27 and the UK. And in that protocol, they would expect to protect the entirety of the Good Friday Agreement. And the question would be, uh, how would that protocol be protected? Would it be protected through the Court of Justice of the European Union, which might be unwelcome to the UK, but it would be a credible sign of its commitment to mm -hmm. the Good Friday Agreement? Or will they accept that it uh, go to the permanent Court of Justice at The Hague as a, as a possible arbiter? They'll be looking for that. Secondly, there's a, a very interesting Irish angle, as, as your listeners may be aware. Mrs. May's government is dependent for its life on the Democratic Unionist yep. Party. Yep. And that is the party which has indulged the fantasy that all questions related to the border can be solved through technological means. And they've absolutely rejected the idea that there should be a, a customs border or a, a regulatory border in the Irish Sea. They now know that the paper that has been circulated in the EU27, which is not yet official, comes down firmly in favour of keeping Northern Ireland inside the single market and inside the customs union if the Good Friday Agreement pledges are to be kept and if there is to be no hard border. So the DUP is going to wake up 
and its leverage is also in trouble because the, the problem for the DUP is it's absolutely fine for them to put pressure on the Conservative government when the Conservative government um, is worried that they might bring them down. But the prospect of a Jeremy Corbyn government is terrifying to the mm. Democratic Unionist Party. Mm. So their threat is entirely hollow. So what may play out at some juncture, if necessary, is that the Conservatives will uh, betray the Democratic Unionist Party in order to make a deal with Ireland, in order to move on to substance in the negotiations. And that will be a very interesting uh, development if it occurs, because it would mean that May's government was perpetually in fear of being brought down by the Democratic Unionist Party. Michelle? Absolutely. I could not... uh agree more. And at this point, the the sort of fantasy of the UK is also that they're going to get some what we call bespoke deal. I would call it like pick and mix suites. They think they're going to get a deal that is specific to them. And what is being offered is besides resolving the three issues that you mentioned about budget, Northern Ireland and citizenship rights, the three on the table are a Canadian, EU Canadian type deal, a Norwegian deal or a WTO. And so, you know, there will be fears, though, on the European side, and this is what they've expressed about making the single market as a whole. It's either you're in it or you're out. And the concern they have is if Britain leaves, that there might be what we call a race to the bottom, social dumping, that Britain could give state aids and subsidies, that there would be a real um, a regulatory race to the bottom. And I, I hear that. And I hear people talk about it to make Britain more competitive, but then they would, if they're not regulatory aligned with EU laws, EU rules, EU standards, that makes market access difficult. And that's particularly a problem for Northern Ireland, given its economic relationship with Ireland. You know, we, we've talked so many times uh, in having both of you on here over the last year or so about all of the business elements, but it, it, and we've talked a little bit about the citizen part of it, and I think it's, it's an important important element to bring up, Michelle, in the fact that you have, you know, tens of thousands, if not more, uh, of citizens from the UK that are working in places like France and Germany, and they are really, they are, to a degree, they are stuck in the middle right now with this. They are. At some point, this this issue will be resolved, and it's part of the negotiations. And I think Brendan is right in the sense that the British have to confront the realities of the fact that the EU is based on a treaty, it's based on a legal regime and a set of rules and rights. And that's going to be something that the British will at some point in some of its earlier papers has indicated that it will have to have some relationship with European laws, with the European Court of Justice, and that will be really important in terms of citizenship rights. I would say one other thing, though, to be watching, and that's tomorrow, Tuesday, um, the House of Commons is looking at the withdrawal bill, and that's where we're getting into the nitty-gritty of the EU bill. And that's going to be something to watch because at this point it shows it will show the weakness of the government. Mm -hmm. It will show the division in the Tory party, the conservatives. There are more than 471 amendments. That's astonishing for a British bill.
Michelle is correct that that withdrawal bill is deeply significant, and one of the key features of it is that it's been characterised by the opposition, by the Scottish National Party, by the Welsh Nationalists, and by Northern Irish parties as a power grab by yeah. Whitehall, which damages relations with the devolved governments, and also, of course, um, it looks like a power grab by the executive vis-à-vis -vis the legislature. So the prospect of getting that bill through Parliament easily uh, has to be judged um, finely balanced. I'd like to go back to uh, the difficulty the UK has in making a credible treaty mm -hmm. with the EU27. Uh, as most people know, the UK doesn't have what anybody else would recognise as a constitution. And its parliament is sovereign and it has the ability to repudiate treaties. Right. So the question immediately arises, if uh, a treaty is made with the EU27, what is the credible commitment that the UK can make that it will abide by that treaty? The term perfidious Albion was not invented by crazed foreigners. <laughs> it refers to the historic practice of the British uh, in, in engaging in, in treaty violations. Right. Parliament can modify any treaty. It can refuse to incorporate it into domestic law and so on. So to make itself credible in making the exit deal in protecting citizens' rights, in committing to uh, paying its divorce bill and, and agreeing the whatever is agreed on the Irish border and regulatory structures across the island of Ireland, it is absolutely vital that the UK agree to adjudication by the Court of Justice of the European Union, which is what the EU27 would expect, or some other uh, credible court-based institution uh, for which the UK would suffer a, a significant penalty were it to break its treaty obligations. So uh, there's not a, a, a sufficient self-understanding within the UK of how they are seen by everybody else. They will need to make those commitments absolutely credible and juridically watertight. Well, it makes me think about just the process of Article 50 to begin with. When you make that designation, you have a two-year window to be able to get all of this stuff done. And, and if you talk to a lot of people, they will say two years, it seems like it's a lot of time. But in the end, with everything that is involved in this process, almost that two-year window, and correct me if I'm wrong, is really trying to be viewed as a deterrent to, uh, to prevent countries from leaving the EU to begin with. And to give them time to reflect on right. the costs and to give them the opportunity to reverse their position if they wish. So May uh, blew it in triggering the uh, process of withdrawal without having an agreed position in her cabinet. And then she magnified her problem by calling an election in the middle of the negotiations yeah. and in effect losing it and, and weakening her domestic bargaining position. Now people are beginning to talk about what are the prospects of being able to withdraw from the process. And John Kerr, who was the British diplomat who with uh, another European designed Article 50 over the weekend made it clear that it was designed in such a way that the relevant state could withdraw its application. Right. But that would be grotesquely humiliating for the Conservative Party, right. quite apart from the fact that it would appear to be a violation of the obligation to follow the referendum result. Michelle, got about 30 seconds left. I'll let you finish I off. I agree. And John uh, Kerr is worth looking at and hearing. But the irreversibility option also involves the EU. It's not just the British saying, you know, we'd like to change our minds. And as you point out, as Brendan points out, referendum 
results are also legitimate as well. A very difficult bind for the U.K. Great having you both back with us, uh, and I know we will be talking with you again. Brendan, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Michelle, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. All the best. Uh, Brendan O'Leary from the uh, School of Political Science here at the University of Pennsylvania, Michelle Egan from American University, and as well, the Wilson Center. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.